You know what I did? I went back and I watched the movies. I wanted to recreate specific scenes. I wanted to recreate in A New Hope when Han runs around the corner in the Death Star and stumbles into all of those stormtroopers. And I'm like, that is a task that he failed at and there was a negative consequence. Hi, right, folks. Craig here. I had an opportunity to spend an hour and a half with Jay Little. This is the guy who uh, was the lead designer on X-Wing Miniature Game. He also was the person who created the narrative dice system, which was used in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, as well as in the Star Wars RPG series. We get to learn Jay's approach to game design, where he got some of his ideas, what it's like to work on big licenses like Warhammer Fantasy and Star Wars. I think any of you that play games will find a lot of interesting points in here. Stick to the end because he has a neat little segment uh, dealing with imposter syndrome, which uh, some of you may or may not be familiar with, but I bet some of you deal with. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play, or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today I'm talking with the award-winning game designer Jay Little. His fingerprints are everywhere in the tabletop gaming landscape. He is most known for his work with Fantasy Flight Games. Now he's the father of the third edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying. He also launched the Star Wars RPG line from uh, Fantasy Flight Games. And you may also have heard a little miniature game, kind of an indie game that he was instrumental in designing called X-Wing. Now listeners know I love talking with game designers. I'm excited to learn about the process of designing game systems and really kind of the innovative landmarks um, that uh, they've marked in the genre itself. So, Jay, welcome to the third floor. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. The view is lovely from here. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, man, um, not that I'm not excited about every guest, but I was super excited (laughs) when you said you would come on because I've been uh, fanboying over uh, some of your work lately. Um, So I I loved what you did before even I uh, knew you. So one of the things that we do is uh, anytime we have a new guest, um, you know, we want to find out how you got into gaming. So take me back to Little J Littles, never played any tabletop games at all. And uh, how did that unfold? So uh, the most dramatic entry into what you would consider the tabletop or the hobby gaming side of things was definitely Dungeons & Dragons, Redbox. Uh, I was eight years old. My older brother at 12 at the time was our DM. Mm-hmm. I still remember my fighter, Corner Ram the Fighter. I still have the character sheet from that uh, from so many years back. I am a pack rat when it comes to gaming. I have yeah. my old character sheets. I still have my old uh, Redbox and all the marked up handwritten notes on them that now I'd be like, oh, that's blasphemy to actually write in your rule books. Um, and I remember this adventure where we were going through the sewers fighting skeletons and I had this halberd and I was swinging it around. And he's like, you can't swing it in a sewer. I'm like, why not? Do you even know what a halberd is, Jay? I'm like, no, it just, it does the most damage. That's why I've got it. Yeah. So then I find out that it's a polearm, right? So I, I've got these fantastic memories and it's the one touchstone that my brother and I have. We, we become estranged over the years, but uh, he's 
I guess, guilty. <laughs> it's his fault for yeah. getting me into games. Uh, but I also grew up in a family that was really, really supportive, especially a mom. Word games were a huge part. So Boggle, Scrabble, Perquacky, uh, all of these different word games were really big. So the culture of gaming was reinforced as a good activity. And I, I was in southeast Wisconsin. That's where I grew up. So I grew up near Lake Geneva. Like yep. the the four horsemen of the Dragonlance <laughs> apocalypse there, Clyde Caldwell lived in the small podunk town that I lived in. No so, kidding. Yeah, it, it was just really strange that we lived in southeast Wisconsin back when Gen Con was still in Milwaukee. So I went to Gen Con years and years and years without realizing how special it was to be a 20-minute right. drive <laughs> from Gen Con. And, and at that point, you know, we're talking... 80s and 90s, when you're going to Gen Con at that time at the Mecca Arena in Milwaukee, when you're at the booth, you're talking to the owner of that company. You're talking God, to the publisher, right. the producer. Yep. It's not like Gen Con and Origins now where they've got a thousand square feet yeah. and they've got, yeah, you know, the, the booths are staffed with these professional wranglers and uh, <laughs> demo staff. But it was just really interesting. I didn't realize until much later just how fortunate I was to grow up in the Midwest where I did. And yeah. uh, so... I gamed all the way through high school, uh, D&D, and Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition were the games that I played the most, followed by Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Played throughout college. A lot of uh, board gaming, too. Cosmic Encounter, my favorite game of all time. (laughs) And uh, I actually got my first gig out of college. I went to Gen Con one. Yeah, it was was crazy. That summer, I went to Gen Con with some of my college buddies who were in my gaming group there. And I had this homebrew game that uh, I had made up to run at college. And I found some guys there and I had just played some events and they were in it. They're like, this is great. Let's talk. So I ended up working with this group, uh, Escape Ventures out of Virginia, and did my first game, Clay Wars, in this role playing game, Exodus. Uh, for them in college back in days of yore. Hold on uh, one second. Clay yeah. Wars. Yes. That sounds familiar to me. Is that the game where you could take like Play-Doh and you could put it, put it together like whatever you wanted? Am I thinking that? So uh, there's a game from TriTech Systems that was Play-Doh driven, uh, okay. which came out surprisingly came out like around the same time. But th- this game was you get some clay and you make monsters. And if I tore off your arm, I'd actually because it was clay, I'd stick it to my creature. And yeah. now I've got that weapon and would move around. So, so I had no idea. Like I, I remember playing that at a convention. I remember, and I remember it was called Clay Wars, and it and that's exactly what it was. You could take them apart, and it that's really funny. I had no idea that was you. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, it may or may not be the exact one that I worked on. Who Close, knows, but right? yeah. Um, because it one of the things I found true over the 25, 30 odd years that I've been part of this, you know, industry is uh, there are very few things that are truly one hundred percent original. Right. Um, it, it's rarefied error when you get that dominion and deck building concept or you get that magic the gathering where there's yep. this expansive way of not just the game but the way it's distributed and marketed and sold um yeah so i would not be surprised if there was another game out there with the same name with the same <laughs> and, and it could <laughs> be wrong around. like that's what i remember that um remember that game i remember playing it. i only played it once but i uh, it's it's burned into my brain so well, let's well fast- first of all, was it a good experience oh it was great I, mean, I, I remember it. <laughs> I'll take credit for it, though. It was absolutely my version. Totally my idea. That's funny. So um, let's fast forward a little bit. 
Um, one of my favorite stories um, that I tracked down of yours was uh, how you interviewed and how the interview went at <laughs> Fantasy Flight Games. So can you tell us uh, how that went down? First, how did you land the interview and then what happened? Sure. So I actually saw the interview posted on Board Game Geek. Uh, that's no the, the first time that I saw it. I had always been keeping my eye open. At the time, I lived in St. Louis. My wife and I uh, had been in St. Louis for about 10, 11 years, but I had always had my eye on openings in the industry. A couple of years earlier, I had worked at WizKids, uh, okay. so I had some experience in the industry and working on a professional level with licenses. Uh, so when I see that there's this job opening at Fantasy Flight Games, I'm excited because they did Twilight Imperium, which at the time was one of my top board games of all time. We played it all the time. And then the Games Workshop deal is announced, and I see that they've got the Games Workshop licenses. I'm like, oh man, things are aligning here. This is this is crazy. I've played Warhammer my entire life. Yeah. Uh, the, the tabletop game and the role-playing game. So I decided, you know what? I'm kind of quirky. I'm really outgoing. I'm loud, and I don't like doing things in the traditional way. So I made up my mind straight up that they were going to get the authentic J experience when I interviewed. So I flew up and I showed up in my cargo shorts, which I always wear a <laughs> star Wars t-shirt and a Hawaiian shirt. I've got my thumbs painted blue. I've always got them painted. Uh, I've got an D six earring in. This is my game mode. When I'm teaching game design, when I'm going to conventions, this is how I dress. So I show up for that in my interview, and they're like, all right, Jay, nice to meet you. Uh, we've got some people who are going to sit on this interview. I'm like, how many people? So there's a Mark O'Connor and Dan Clark and a few others, and I just pull out my little satchel of things, and I open up my folder, and I hand out these pre-generated characters for Warhammer. And I run them through an adventure where they find this warpstone artifact from Lustria, and they have to get it uh, to... Ostland, and they have got to you know make their way, and there are some Skaven after them and stuff like that. So, so I ran them through a short Warhammer fantasy adventure, and at the end of it, I'm like, so, um, what else you got, right? And so <laughs> we chit chat, and afterward, uh, I go back to the hotel and talk to my wife, and uh, I'm pretty excited. And she's like, how do you think it went? I'm like, I, I think it went pretty well. I think it went pretty well. I, I love it here. I'd really, really uh, like to work here. So. I get on the flight back from the Twin Cities back down to St. Louis, and when I get there and I'm waiting for my wife to pick me up from the uh, airport, uh, when I call her, she's like, oh, there's a, there's a message for you on the machine. Uh, you got the job. Oh, God. Wow. How cool is that? Now, and, and years later now, I mean, it's been a while since I've worked with Fantasy Flight Games, uh, and the people who were involved in that still remember that and, and bring that up, that that was one of the things that stuck out. Not just they, they got part of my personality, but I was able to show them that I knew Warhammer and that I cared about and respected that property. So that leads me to kind of one of the things I would, I've always been fascinated by is, you know, it's one thing, um, you know, to, to come up with your own concepts, to design your own game. It's another thing to have really the the honor and the weight of a huge license right so yeah. i mean you've you've gotten both games workshop licenses on your shoulders and you've had star wars on your shoulders i'd like to get an idea you know what that's like especially as opposed to you know not having that restriction well what's interesting is as you could imagine and you kind of alluded to it's a blessing and a curse right, right? you've got a built-in fan base but along with those fans come huge expectations and especially with brands like Star Wars, which is arguably one of the two or three most recognizable licenses in the entire world, 
uh, in Warhammer, which in the game industry is a rock star license, and I would say have some of the most rabid, faithful fans. So they are going to scrutinize every decision you make. They are going to scrutinize every product that you put out, and they are going to rake you over the coals if they don't think that you've done that property justice. Uh, as they should, right? I mean, they care about this, and hopefully the people who are being asked to design games care about it and love it as much as the fans do. Like That's the ideal situation. And fortunately, I feel like that's the situation that I was able to land in. Yeah. Um, so, so it's tough because you've got the expectations from the licensor who wants to make sure that you both know the property but also respect the property so that uh, I remember – so a funny anecdote about this is when I was working in Warhammer – I was writing an adventure, um, and I wanted it to take place in the Altdorf, the capital city of the Empire, and I was talking about how there were these aqueducts carrying water throughout the city, and my licensing manager's like, no, 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 there are no aqueducts in the old world. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Right? They've got medieval technology. They haven't figured out how to move water. They've got sewers. And this argument went back and forth for for weeks. And I was like, all right, how do I design around this? Well, I flew out to England, out to uh, Nottingham, to the Games Workshop facilities, which are amazing. Yeah. And we're sitting there with Alan Merritt, who is the head honcho. I mean, his word is law. And we're sitting in there with a meeting, and I'm giving an update on Warhammer and how things are going. He's like, oh, just imagine Altdorf and the huge streets and the bustling marketplace and the aqueducts. I'm like, and, and the what there? And the aqueducts. I'm like, oh, so I just pick up my notebook and I write down aqueducts and I kind of flash that over to my licensing manager like, uh, when I get back to the States, I'm going to send that manuscript back over. Oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> little, I mean, little did he know. <laughs> oh, exactly. And, and suddenly he's like, all right, if Alan Merritt said they're aqueducts, boom, there are now magically aqueducts throughout the whole world. Right. Uh, but, you know, but it, it's details like that that the licensing manager is going to steer you toward. But as you get a better relationship, the longer I worked on Warhammer, and this was true with Star Wars as well, the more leeway we were given to introduce new ideas and new content, which yeah. is when you were talking about the responsibility, that's really, for me, uh, humbling isn't quite the right word for it, but it, it was really a big honor to be able to introduce brand new facts into... Contribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like this is the mark. And so for Warhammer, I introduced a lot of the adventures and scenario briefs based on my home campaign. So the game that I had been running... During the time that I was interviewing for Fantasy Flight Games with my friends back in St. Louis, yeah. I, I was able to work some of those characters. I was able to Man. work the, the player characters, but I had to still do it all within the body of understanding the old world and making sure that it, it fit. So right. the, the names and the places and how magic works and all these things. Uh, but it's really exciting to see something come out in print and be able to look at it and say, you know, I did that. I, I made this contribution to this property, to this license, to this, you know, feeling and concept that's been so important to me. Um, yeah. And, and when it came to Star Wars, doubly so. Um, as most people who grew up when I did, I'm 47, born in 73, right? So the, the Star Wars original trilogy for me was something that I grew up with and revered and was always important to me. So being able to write for and contribute to Star Wars, whew. And when we got the Star Wars license, uh, it was really interesting. I'm thinking, oh, man, they've worked with Eric Lang. They've worked with Kevin Wilson. They worked with Corey Kaneska. 
uh, I'll be lucky maybe a year or two into the license, I'll be able to work on something. And I, I don't know if you've heard this anecdote, but uh, we were looking to adopt a pet. So we were at uh, a local rescue area and we're walking around, walking around and I get a phone call and it's Michael Hurley, who was my manager at the time. And he's like, Jay, guess what? We got the Star Wars license. I'm like, yes, that is so exciting. <laughs> I'm still in the back of my mind thinking, oh, man, Kevin, Eric, you guys are going to be so set up for this. He's like, and you're going to be responsible for two of our three launch designs. I'm like, wow, wh- wh- what? So it, I was just completely flabbergasted. I get off the phone, and I look up, and we are standing in front, literally, of the cage of a black cat named Jedi. <laughs> And so we call one of the people, one of the volunteers over. I'm like, you've got to explain this to me. What, what, what's the story behind this? He's like, well, this was a stray. And every day we'd put food out and he'd come and get it. would say, look, it's the Return of the Jedi. Return I'm like, of the Jedi. <laughs> we are adopting this cat. Yeah. And so uh, he's not here in my lap right now where he usually would be during an interview or an opportunity to, to muck things up. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's this fantastic story of all of these things falling into place. That's um, cool. Yeah. Whew. So Jay, let's let's now think about not having the license, right? So you are you have a lot more freedom as as a designer. Uh, you're creating um, in a different way. Um, it's not like you're not creating with a license, but what is what do you like about that? So what are the benefits of that? Other than the obvious, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. So playing outside of the sandbox instead of inside of the sandbox obviously has the advantage of opening up the options. You can go larger, you can go bigger, you can color outside the lines, if you will. The most daunting task is that being being told that you could do anything that you want is actually incredibly stressful. Yeah. Because out of all of the things out there, you've got to pick a good one, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, I will go off language a little bit here, but I tell my students that when we're brainstorming, we've got to come up with a lot of good ideas. Because if we only come up with bad ideas, then our best idea is still a turd. Right. If right. we only come up with turds, the best idea is still a turd. So yep. we've got to come up with good ideas, and that's really, really daunting. Uh, so when you're designing outside of a license and you've just got sky's the limit and everything is wide open, if you already have an idea in mind for a mechanic, if you've got an idea in mind for a particular rule or system or structure, then you can start to shape things around it and hope. Yeah. But if you don't have that idea or a mechanic, I want to do something with um, things that are going to connect with stat blocks in a certain way. If you don't have that driving force, it can be really, really difficult. Fortunately, very little design is done in a vacuum. Uh, I mm-hmm. had a fantastic group of people. A big shout out to Dan Clark at Fantasy Flight Games, but also Sam Stewart and Andy Fisher and a whole bunch of other people that when you hit the wall or you run into that obstacle and you're not sure, I could literally just turn my chair around and say, hey, Dan, let me bounce this idea off you. And when you're riffing with somebody else who's not only creative, but is as impassioned about this hobby as you are, oh man, it's amazing what can happen. So now that we've got kind of a feeling, um, Jay, of you know how you got into it, um, uh, a little bit of an insight into the design. What I want to do now is take a quick break. When we get back from the break, um, I'm going to go out on a limb, at least for me, and I want to talk about what I consider one of the most innovative things um, that I've seen in a while, um, and that is the concept of narrative dice and role-playing. So we'll be right back. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To give you guys, the listeners, an idea, and some of you that follow me on YouTube um, and been listening to uh, the podcast for a while know that um, I rediscovered role-playing games recently, and this is all because of uh, the lockdown. Um, Some of my – I've got a circle of about 20 people, and twice a year we go camping. Um, Not all 20 go every time, about uh, five to ten of us go each time. And it's it's camping for gamers. It's got a whole Facebook group and everything like that, and uh, we bring a – ship ton of board games and all we do is cook meat drink beers and play games and we do that for three days straight and we smell at the end of it and have a great time so around the campfire you know we're always talking and uh everybody's asking you know talk about their favorite games and every time it came to me i would say my favorite of all time memories of gaming are all role-playing games so when i go back and think about great moments of gaming so what i just consider the things that have burned in my brain it was always playing a role-playing game so they got on me about all right you need to like because most of them have never done it before so they finally pushed me we're gonna do it lockdown happens camping trip gets canceled and uh, I find that you can do it online now and so on and so forth. So I start poking around, figuring out what's, what system out there um, I was going to use. Because everybody knows that, that listens, I'm old as hell. I used to play GURPS like first, second edition, right? That's how old I am, an old red box just like Jay. So I find uh, Edge of Empire is kind of the, uh, in the new Star Wars system where Star Wars is implemented now. So I, I buy the core book. And Jay, I start flipping through it. And you want to talk about a big departure from what I, you know, saw, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And uh, at first I was did not get it like I couldn't understand what was happening with this dice thing. And, what are these colors and oh, shapes? Dude. Where are my numbers? So I got to be completely honest with you. My first reaction was, you know, freaking fantasy fight games cannot put out a system with regular freaking dice. They just can't do it. Right. So, I, you know, I read about it. I hop online and watch a couple videos and I start. OK, I kind of get what's happening. Fast forward to me running my first game in 20 years and the narrative dice blew me away, Jay. So I want to talk, first of all, uh, for those of you listening real quick, narrative dice, um, you've got. I'm going to oversimplify this, Jay. You got good dice and bad dice, right? Good dice that um, are trying to make something happen. That bad dice are going to try to stop things from happening. There's symbols on both. There's symbols for successes and failures. There's symbols for good things, uh, advantages, and symbols for bad things, threats. You create the whole pool. 
you roll it out, things cancel each other out, and at the end, you either have successes or failures that are uncanceled, and you either have good things or bad things that are uncanceled, and then there's entire mechanisms built around then explaining what happened based off of what that role is, and that's the part that I found fascinating. So, Jay, where's like where does the idea start? So, the first time we see it, if my understanding is in Warhammer Fantasy uh, Third Edition, right? Correct. Um, bef- so, you start working on that, and Second Edition did not have this. No, no, no. Second Edition was a very, very traditional basic percentile system, right? Tried and true. Uh, it had been around that way in first edition as well. And, you know, it's the, the same sort of percentile system that Call of Cthulhu and a lot of other basic percentile games have. So it was really, really established. So, yeah, when I came out with Woofrip, which had these colored dice of different sizes and shapes, and they've got symbols on them instead of numbers, um, the initial reaction was not positive. I'm sure. You had, if, if you thought, holy cow, what is this? Six years after it had been introduced, once it got into Star Wars, imagine when nobody had done anything. Yeah. Um, And what's really interesting is I had always had these, I guess, goals and wishes when I was DMing games, because I usually ended up being the person that would run the games instead of play in them. And I'm like, gosh, as a game master, I wish I had some more tools at my disposal. I wish I had some more assets or abilities. And my love of board gaming really helped me because I kept on thinking about board gaming. Sid Meier has this fantastic quote about games. that A, a game is a series of interesting choices. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, that drives player agency. Wait, the, the dungeon master is only one player at the table. So why should he have all the power over the story? What if we put all of the storytelling that takes place in a game and put it in the middle of the table, right? So all the responsibilities for giving descriptions, all the responsibilities for setting the scene, all the responsibilities for driving the narrative forward, and then we cut it into equal pieces and give everybody at the table an equal share. And that was really, I think, the, the original flicker of the narrative dice system, is finding a way to push some of the both the responsibility, but also the fun, yeah. the the agency, the ownership of the story from the game master to the players. So my favorite thing as a GM right now is a very simple phrase. Tell me what happened. And, yes. and I got to tell you, Jay, like I, I, so foreign to what I'd ever seen or heard of before. And I started and, and the players that are, that are in my group. And now we're 10 sessions in. And I cannot imagine doing it in another way. Um, and to give you guys an idea of what that phrase is, is that after you roll these dice, the dice not only tell you that you succeeded or you failed, but they give you degrees of success and degrees of failure. And there's different ways that they can, quote unquote, spend um, this mechanically, or there's even narrative ways to do it. And to Jay, what Jay just said is huge because then they start telling you what happened and they start telling the story with you. Yeah, and and even the colors of the dice matter. So, for example, if you and I were doing a combined task, right, like you are helping me hack into a computer, I might get some advantage dice because of your aid. So when we roll for it, if the task succeeded because of the advantage dice, we know specifically and directly that it was your help. That is such a sense of empowerment. And when I started to see this, it it was almost like this – energy just started to build up around the group when we did this the hair on the back of my uh, arms started to raise and i'm yep. like wow i mean we are really telling a story here i am not 
saying a story at them. Yep. We are telling a collective story and it was really, really amazing. Um, so one of the things that I really credit with this is my first boss when I was at fantasy flight games was Jeff Tidball, brilliant, brilliant designer. Um, and I was, you know, having some difficulty with Warhammer and exactly how much freedom I should go and how, how far should I push Christian Peterson, owner of fantasy flight games at the time wanted something different and weird and wacky, but of course he also wanted to succeed. You right. know, like that's, that's no, <laughs> yeah, just give me something really it's successful that's completely idea. innovative, <laughs> hasn't been done before and make it fall into budget. Um, so I was talking and combat had come up and I'm like, man, you know, what really bugs me is every single role playing game I've ever played has a different measurement for how long a round of combat is. Some will break it down that it's 10 seconds or some will break it down in some other metric or some other measurement. And so I'm having this conversation with Jeff and I go into his office. And I'm like, Jeff, how, how long is a round of combat? And he goes, it is exactly as long as it takes for everybody to do one cool thing. Love it. I'm like, you blew my mind, man. And so that became one of the tenets. That became one of the commandments for this system. Everybody has to be able to do one cool thing. Every time that we go around in this storytelling narrative and the initiative system really pushes that because yeah. it's a shared initiative system that everybody is literally cooperating. Um, and just little phrases like that, little conversations like that became these commandments that I wanted to make sure were baked into the narrative dice structure and were real milestones that when we hit one of those and that next play session came up, and we'd be like, oh, yeah, we're really onto something here. Yeah. yeah. And then would add it to the next thing and add it to the next thing. So anyway, so, so Warhammer came out and it ruffled some feathers, but eventually some people started to, to come around to it. And not everybody would. And I don't expect that. I don't expect everybody to love everything I design. But what I did come to appreciate better is even people who did not like it at least acknowledged that I cared enough to do the work. Mm-hmm. And that I, I did my best. It may not have been what they wanted, but I treated the, the property with respect. I took that job seriously. So, you know, flash forward then to getting the Star Wars license and Christian saying, all right, um, here's what I liked about the narrative system. Now make it Star Warsy. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so do what you need. And again, now we're going to be working with these 400-page core books and a more traditional role-playing delivery mechanism where Woofrip was doing things a little bit differently with uh, components and other physical elements. It had uh, taken advantage of a lot of Fantasy Flight Games' real strengths in physical board game production yeah. with cards and tokens and chits and things like that, whereas Star Wars was going to be the funky dice that there's also an app for and then, by and large, supported through the books. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, take that the soul, the essence of what the narrative structure was. And I, I like to tell people that Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was an indie project that I got a triple A summer blockbuster budget yeah. to work on. And then take that essence and now Star Wars it up, man. So I'm like, you know what I did? I went back and I watched the movies. I wanted to recreate specific scenes. I wanted to recreate in a new hope when Han runs around the corner in the death star and stumbles into all of those stormtroopers. And I'm like, that is a task that he failed at. And there was a negative consequence. Yep. All right. What about Luke and Leia on the bridge? And he accidentally shoots the control that would have extended the bridge. I'm like, all right, he succeeded in separating himself from the stormtroopers. So the task succeeded. 
oh, but there was a setback. There was a setback. He accidentally impeded progress in the narrative. And so we would find these scenes in the movies that we wanted to be able to recreate. We didn't just want to be able to recreate the characters, right? Han is the scoundrel archetype. But we wanted to recreate these scenes, these uh, things that we see where rarely in Star Wars do you just straight up succeed at something (laughs) and everything goes as planned and everything falls in the favor of the heroes, right? That's not how Star Wars works. I mean, look how many limbs get lost over the, the movies, Yeah, right? Which is why I love the critical system in it too, right? We got to show people that, uh, okay, okay, you don't think combat's deadly? Just stick around for a little bit and don't cure those wounds and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was really about finding what we loved the most about the movies, talking about those scenes. And I keep on telling people that people remember stories, they don't remember stats. Correct. Right? So, so if we took a game of Risk, I don't remember the game where I rolled 5-5-4-5-1-5. Five, 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 you know, I remember the, the game where my two armies held off your entire huge, massive army, and I was able to stave off this invasion from Australia. Right? Like That's the sort of stuff that we remember. So, so what are the scenes that you remember most? What are the things that you talk about the most? What are the ones that, when you think Star Wars, what are the first five scenes that come to mind? And taking those and trying to see, does our dice system support that? Can we tell that story? And the more we worked on it, the more we felt that, yes, the, the game is driven to not only tell those stories, but the math was taken out of the dice because I didn't want people to focus on the math. I wanted people to focus on the narrative. Yep. Let us worry about the math. We'll take care of the math in the background. And mathematically, the curve is supposed to, for, for a typical task, with limited preparation, so maybe an eight or nine die uh, skill attempt where you are unskilled, you should fail more often than you succeed, but you should fail with advantage. So you're going to fail with a silver lining. Yep. And that is always failing forward. So if I don't succeed, I make it easier for the next person to. Or if I don't succeed, at least something interesting happens. And that interesting thing can then launch off whatever narrative would, would, you know, come next. Yeah, so you're working through this, Jay, and you've kind of come up with a basic concept, right? This concept of a dice pool, things cancel each other out. What I'd be interested to know is from the beginning, was it always we're going to have mechanical ways to spend these advantages and disadvantages? and Or was it always going to be narrative and became like I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, the where it started and where it ended? Because I love where it ended, but I know that's not where it started because that's never how it works. Are there, <laughs> right. are there different plateaus or landmarks or breakthroughs that you can remember in that process? So with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the advantages and the boons and banes, as they were called then, were very mechanically driven. You would have a card, kind of like 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, and it said if you had this result, these are the things that you could do. And you you kind of bought these items off of a fey list. Um, so it was a very like menu oriented set of outcomes and results and it worked, it worked well for that setting, but that wasn't star Wars. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to both still have some sort of mechanical fidelity because some people just operate better when they know some guidelines, when they have some boundaries. So I knew that we needed to at least give some, uh, like the crit rating on weapons is a good example. It might take two, three, four advantage to trigger a critical or it takes one triumph yeah and one triumph can activate that but so i wanted things like all right you can use a couple advantage to recover strain you can use a couple advantage to gain an extra maneuver for the round so these things i wanted to have this pre-built uh exchange rate if you would that you could do but i also wanted to make sure and that's why i spent so much time on the game master section 
is that really what you've got to consider is that this, I guess, system of, of advantages and disadvantages are really currency. They're narrative mm-hmm. currency. And you kind of barter with them around the table with how it's going to be spent. Is it raining out? Well, if I, if I give you one setback die because it's raining, it tells you that it's like a light drizzle. If I put four setback dice in front of you when I'm describing the rain, you know that it is a downpour. You know that this is torrential. Well, in the same way, when we're describing the outcomes coming out, if I want to describe a four advantage you know, success or, or a four advantage event triggering off of that task, that it could be something big and impressive and massive. So I wanted to make sure that there were these narrative ways that people could uh, agree to spend their outcomes. And that's why when you said, all right, then explain what happened is you can kind of shape that as the GM, the, the person might be trying to climb a cliff and they're like, all right, so I climb up quickly enough that I can lower a rope down to help Bob <laughs> up next. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the GM can kind of cut in and say, and that's the perfect time then for Bob to make his role. If they think that they've kind of spent up to the limit of what a narrative you know, a benefit might be. Uh, but what I really like is, is this collaboration where if people are stumped, then they're like, Ooh, ooh, ooh maybe this is going to make it easier for us to sneak into the base later. Yep. And so one of the cool things is like even being able to bank advantages. I don't know what I want to do with these three advantages now. So let's kind of put them off to the side and then maybe we'll come up with an idea later. It's been really fascinating, um, obviously watching myself as a GM progress through this, right? Because this was brand new to me too. But I've been most of the people in my group have never played role-playing games before. And to watch session one and then watch session 10, it's amazing the progress and the arc that they've come. And we now, because of the structure you built, now have come up with a, a really interesting table language. That's not only between the GM and the players, but it's between the players themselves. And, you know, someone gets stumped on the fact that they, you know, succeeded with three threats, which means it was not a it was succeeded, but didn't go as well as you wanted to. And suddenly other players are saying, hey, you could do this. You could do that. You have we have one player that's really locked in on the mechanical part saying, well, according to this chart, you can spend three, just you know, three threats to do this or three advantages to do that. Then you've got the other players that are going, well, what if there's a rope there, (laughs) you know, and you couple that. Jay, with the um, uh, initiative system, which I saw, again, something I had never seen, which is everybody rolls for initiative, but it just creates PC initiatives, right? Player character initiatives. And you together as a group, they get to decide who goes first, what makes most sense and that wonderful that ties yes. ties with that. And then on top of that, the destiny point system, which is the ability to, you know, have a currency that goes back and forth that allows the players to not only, you know, increase their chances of something happening, but to even impact the narrative. So the whole ecosystem there is is pretty impressive, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. You know, the initiative system is probably the one part that if people play a different game, they'll graft the initiative system onto it. I bet. Right. So initiative system is collectively you're reserving slots during which someone will act. And the reason I came up with this is because of the D&D session back at home. Uh, in one session, we had the cleric roll a natural 20 for initiative, and there's nobody wounded, and there's nothing that they can do, and the rogue rolled a natural one, so they went last, and they couldn't use sneak attack or flank anybody. Yep. I'm like, that sucks. Yep. Why couldn't the cleric say, hey, rogue, you're up, dude? I'm like, wait a second. I can do that. I yeah. can do that in the system. I can make sure that that 
issue never comes up because now the players and if you want to have a round where you take the last initiative slot this round and the first initiative slot in the next round so that your Wookiee with a fibro axe just tears up that bar go for it right that is a group decision that's a tactical decision and that's a story thing exactly and so yeah exactly and 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 it 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 creates a cohesion and a cooperation where they they are collaborating together which is something that you know is a constant challenge in other role-playing games is to is to get them not get get them to play as a party you know so also in, in traditional initiative systems if you know that you're going last in the round you might check out mentally yeah. for other people and, and you'll miss part of the story so when it comes to you you're more likely to act clinically and mechanically rather than narratively but with this shared initiative system everybody is leaning forward everybody is invested in every die roll and every time a hero slot comes up in initiative it's a decision it's a discussion it's a story point because the narrative could start branching off depending on who goes next yeah yeah very cool and um you know since then uh fantasy flights put out the genesis system which is yep. you know takes a lot of these ideas well mo- most of them <laughs> or if not all of them and puts them in a generic gurps uh slash savage worlds type uh scenario which i just ordered the book for i'm going to check that out too well guys we're going to take a quick break when we get back i want to learn more about the star wars uh role-playing games i want to find out really um you know where the ideas came from how um jay worked through um how he was going to put out um such a huge license so we'll be right back Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3 by 3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So we got to hear uh, a really the neat story um, about you finding out that you were not only did Fantasy Flight get the license, but good Lord, you were going to work on it and have a cat with the name Jedi. Um, (laughs) What I'd be interested to know, though, is um, early on when certain decisions were made. So for those listening, obviously there's a couple big decisions. One was to take a lot of the mechanics from Warhammer fantasy third edition and bring it over. Um, I would like to know um, why edge of empire, why break it into three books? Um, why edge of empire first? So you find out you got the license, you've got the new cat, you come into the office the next day. Like what's, where does that conversation even begin? Jay? So uh, Michael Hurley, who was the production manager and my boss uh, when the Star Wars license came in, we kind of sat down and we talked about what are the things that we really liked from the Woofrup system. And over the years, 
Star Wars really benefited from Woofrup's growing pains. So we were able to take five or six years of Woofrup going through and getting feedback and learning what did and didn't work with this thing that hadn't been done before and throw out the things that didn't work, refine the things that did, and then find what elements would make this feel as natural in the Star Wars setting as possible. And one of the first things was deciding that we couldn't do it with one book. And I was a huge proponent of this. And I know that there was some backlash and some people would argue that, oh, you're having us buy the same game three times. Well, no, I'm not. No one's forcing you to buy any of these books. But if you were to go ask 100 people what they thought Star Wars was all about, you might get 100 different answers. But really, it came down to three general things. And that is this feeling of the scum and villainy and the grittiness of it and these smugglers and the outer rims and, and kind of this dirty patina uh, covering the rest of the Star Wars universe. For other people, it's this big struggle between David and Goliath and you've got the, the Empire versus the Rebellion and all of the tension and the political, uh, you know, there's just a lot there that's a little bit yep. more story packed than some of the others and then for other people it's all about the jedi and the force and they just want to play jedi and they want to play around with the force because that's such a distinct thing that makes star wars a space fantasy instead of pure science fiction like star trek right Um, and so it's like we there's no way we can cram all of this into just one book the other reason i wanted to break this into three lines and christian did too is we could have more of a phased release And by the time we got to the force, we would have had several years of this product out and gotten feedback from fans. And as designers, we would have also gotten more feedback. And we had two more years of design development and refinement to make sure when we got to full-blown Jedi, this is if you're going to really nail one thing about Star Wars, (laughs) you have got to stick the landing on Jedi and the force. So it had to be the last one in the series so that we had more time to work on it. And by that point I had had some health issues. I had a, a big heart attack and I was laid up for, for months and uh, Andy Fisher and Sam Stewart really, really stepped in and Andy Fisher, I think took the reins on age of rebellion and Sam Stewart kind of shepherded uh, force and destiny and really took everything that we had worked on with edge of the empire. So I led the design team for the narrative dice system and I designed edge of the empire so there's the narrative dice system knowing that it still needs to be grafted or it it needs to be free enough that it can still be its own generic system named genesis yeah but if you're going to pick one of these which one do i want to do well i want to create firefly in space man so edge of the empire had to be first because i wanted to do my own firefly role-playing game all right there it is there's the bare (laughs) stripped down truth yeah and or farscape Yep. Or any of those other stories, right? And and so Edge of the Empire had to be first. And the other reason why I thought Edge made the most sense is because each system has this secondary element that helps ground the narrative for that. So Force and Destiny has morality because you've got mm-hmm. the light and the dark side. Age of Rebellion has duty and responsibility because that's a big part of your one part of this larger machine. It is bigger than just yourself. And where do you fit in and how do you contribute? Well, for Edge of the Empire obligation was a touchstone and it was a turning point in the design and the development and really the mindset of what we are going to achieve with edge of the empire 
And I describe obligation system as it is a platinum credit card you never want to use. <laughs> right? Oh, your ship is damaged. It's going to cost you 50,000 credits, or you could owe a favor to a hut. Right. Well, it basically lets you accomplish anything that you want narratively if you're willing to suffer some sort of consequence, such as, well, now you owe somebody a favor, or now you have uh, this duty to uh, some crime boss, or you know now you're in deep with it, whatever it might be. You've got something hanging over you, the sort of Damocles that can not only narratively prompt you as a player, but as the GM. Oh, I see a whole bunch of disadvantage pop up in a die roll and you happen to owe the huts a lot of money yep. guess what they sent some bounty hunters after you boom it, it's very fascinating um how that all works together and, and i gotta <laughs> i wonder if this has happened to you so since doing this and it's a weekly game i've gone back and i've watched uh watched the mandalorian again um which is just it is it has set in edge of the empire absolutely um, uh i went back and watched rebels clone wars and stuff like that but I, I'm a little mad at you because you've kind of ruined my ability to watch movies and shows now because I'm like, oh, they rolled his obligation this episode. And oh, boy, there you go. She must have gotten two threats on that success. Absolutely. I'm, I'm <laughs> like fixed in that mindset. When you start to design games, you see design everywhere. Um, and I talk about the rule of three with my students, and then they see the number three everywhere, right? But like, <laughs> I, I watch the movies and the series so often during the design of this to try to recreate these scenes. Mm -hmm. And because I know this system so well, I speak in this and I interpret scenes into this. You know, it, watching John Wick, are you kidding yeah. me? John Wick gets the crap beat out of him. He rolls so much disadvantage, but he rolls so many successes and triumphs along the way, <laughs> right? Um, so I see it in every movie now. I see it in every series. Game of Thrones is all about this. Isn't that funny? Right? So, yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's a testament to how robust this system is. I agree. And how adept it is at capturing the narrative part, that story part. Because if it was all about mechanics, people wouldn't be seeing numbers up on yep. the screen. They're seeing the stories. They're seeing the, the other textures that appear when you're rolling those dice. No, completely agree. So, Jay, now you're several years removed from yep. all of that. You're no longer with Fantasy Flight Games. Um, from my understanding, talking to a lot of designers, the process never finishes, right? At some point, you have to put the pencil down and say, we're going to release this and, you know... Going back, if you could go back, is there anything that you wish you could revisit or change um, if you had the opportunity? Um, or do you just not even think that way? So first off, uh, you hit the nail on the head with one of your comments there. When you're talking about some, at some point, you got to set the, you know, the pencil down or the paperish down and you got to move on. Um, I had a really tough time with that with one of my first projects of Fantasy Flight Games. It was Kevin Wilson who took me aside and he said, you start out designing a game, but you end up delivering a product. Right. That's you a have great to have, yeah, it, 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 it was so simple, but it's some of the best mentorship and advice that I've, I got. I really give Kevin a lot of credit um, for the advice that he gave me over the course of my career. Um, but there, there are a few things that I regret. My biggest regret is that Cosmic Encounter is my favorite game of all time. Uh, I have probably played it more than any other game. If I had to play one game to save my life, it would be Cosmic Encounter because I would either win or I would have a lot of fun dying. Right. right? 
Um, and so I got to design an expansion for Cosmic Encounter. Dream come true. I got to design expansions for Castle Old World, one of my favorite games. I got to design expansions for Wiz War, one of my favorite games. Yeah. Cosmic Encounter, my favorite game of all time. I get to work with Peter Olatka on this. Bill Averill, you, you're kidding me, right? Well, um, Cosmic Storm, the expansion that I created, is undoubtedly the worst expansion for Cosmic Encounter. <laughs> right? And And... I own it. I will completely own it. It, it is my fault. Um, I worked hard on that, but Kevin's words kept back. Come, you know, you start out designing this, but it's going to turn into a product. And I, I really felt under the gun. And if I could go back and, and revisit anything in my design career, uh, I would ask, I would plead, I would beg, I would go into Christian's <laughs> office on my hands and knees and say, just give me a few more weeks to work on Cosmic Storm. Because there's such a huge community of, of people who are experts in Cosmic Encounter that I yeah. could have tapped into. Um, more people, every game can always use more playtesting. Um, so I, I think that and then uh, Blood Bowl Team Manager, I got to work on. Played a lot of the Blood Bowl Tabletop Miniatures game. I got to do the card game, which I'm extremely proud of. It's a and great I, game. Thank you. Um, I, I love it. I think it's really, really faithful to the the essence of the game and the season experience. And I designed the first expansion, Sudden Death. But then I moved on to other projects, and I didn't get to do the uh, second expansion for Blood Bowl, and I didn't get to, to design a halfling team. I really, really, really wanted to design a halfling team because I wanted to use small cards. And instead of like normal sized cards, halflings are just small cards and they just, yeah, get, yeah. That's but funny. Th- those are the things that I miss the most and, and wish I could go back on. Um, is the narrative dice system perfect? No, obviously not. There are some things that I think are imbalanced in the game, but have to be. At some point, you've got to decide is this better? does this make this a better game or does this make this a better product or does this make this a better experience? And there are some decisions that I made because it was a better product versus a better game and vice versa. Uh, So as a whole, I'm extremely proud of it. There are a few things that I I wish I could have solved in a better way or a different way. Um, But, you know, overall I'm extremely pleased with the body of work that I've been able to develop over the years. That's great. So, guys, we've been focusing on the role-playing game, which is uh, really, um, I think, uh, probably what Jay's most well-known for. I don't know. But I do want to talk a little bit about miniature games. So we're going to take a break. When we get back from this break, I want to find out about designing X-Wing. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, here on the third floor you'll find us playing Malifaux and other games on Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase Markle compatible, and lighter than neoprene. These mats use a new material that almost eliminates any glare. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a design, then choose an overlay like the one for Marvel Crisis Protocol or Malifaux 3rd Edition strats and schemes. It's going to speed up your deployment and the placement of strategy and objective markers. Until the end of June 2020, you can use the new promo code THIRDFLOOR620 to get a 10% discount on your next order. In the notes, you can ask for the Third Floor Wars logo to be put on your mat for free. Again, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR620, that's T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R 620, to get a 10% discount. 
All the details are in the show notes. So for everybody who ever plays miniatures, um, I have people on the show all the time, Jay, and they, um, I asked the question I asked you is how'd you get into this? And 90% of the people, when it's a miniatures game topic um, and a miniature game guest, uh, they say Warhammer, right? Warhammer Fantasy, Warhammer 40K. Um, I think that is a function of the age of my guests, um, because I will argue that they'll, we will soon see, as people get older, that really their gateway was X-Wing. Because um, I think X-Wing turned out to be a game that brought a lot of people into miniature gaming. Um, so I'd like to get a, get a sense. One, um, was that a huge right turn for you, um, going from role-playing games to, to miniature games? Or that was all in your wheelhouse, and how different is it for you? So what was really interesting is I, I grew up playing Warhammer 40k, uh, particularly Necron. And as soon as I had built, established, and painted my Necron army, nobody would play me anymore. Um, but that seems to be the story with Necron armies. Anyway, anyway, um, so I played a, a number of tabletop games as well. I've got a large collection of games, and so I played a number of minis games. I did a lot of uh, clicky games that WizKids did, so Mage Knight was a huge game. Their Mech Warrior Dark Age clicky game yeah. was fantastic. So I played a ton of miniatures games. So X-Wing was not completely outside of my uh, comfort zone, if you will. So I, I had done work, and I had worked with WizKids for a while. So I had that experience, and then playing them myself. And what's weird with X-Wing is Warhammer and 40K at the time were still about big armies and large point armies that you were pitting at each other. So you had dozens and dozens of figures out on the field, sometimes hundreds, depending yeah. on how elaborate or if you were going to a convention and they've got one of those huge terrain setups. Uh, but with Star Wars, it was more of a squad-based, smaller. We wanted fewer ships on the board at a time that were a little bit more nimble, agile, and we could play it on a 3 by 3 board. So one of the things right off the bat was deciding our table space. Mm-hmm. So, so we are playing on a three by three area. We're not playing on a three by five or a larger table that you might get uh, for a lot of board gaming or for a lot of miniatures games where you've got these large pitched battles or even with HeroScape. If you remember the HeroScape assembly oh, yeah. terrain, right? Some of those could get absolutely huge and monstrous, but all right, I've got a three foot by three foot area. How many ships can I get in there before it feels cluttered, before you mm-hmm. feel like you can't maneuver? And so we really wanted to bring down the number of ships that were going to be on the, the field. That's where the 100-point limit came in. So, all right, 100 points should be able to buy you, what, seven or eight lousy ships, two or three decent ships, somewhere in between there. Um, you're right. Like, if you're going to want Han Solo or Luke piloting one of your ships, it's obviously going to cost more. Yep. But still, let's keep this reasonable. Another reason, though, is we knew that the price point was going to be high. So we want to get as much mileage out of these miniatures as possible. What's interesting with the miniatures, and if you've got these guests on, they can probably empathize with this as well. Uh, When you look at the standard starter box for X-Wing, it's got a clear panel on the front, and it shows you one X-Wing and two TIE Fighters Mm -hmm. at a price point of $40. And half of the gaming world will look at that and go, how can you charge $40 for three figures? And the other half will look at that. How can you only charge $40 yeah, right. for three figures? <laughs> right? So I, I think that shows you that it's at the sweet spot. But they're yeah. pre-assembled. They're pre-painted. They look awesome. Yeah. They, they were sculpted amazingly. Uh, but it was interesting, not only mechanics, but what scale do we make these ships? Yeah. 
how small or how large, they have to be large enough for Lucasfilm so that they've got the level of detail needed to be a properly licensed product. Mm-hmm. But I want to make them small enough that I can get enough of them in a three by three space. Right. So uh, the sculptors actually proposed uh, three different initial sizes. And we took a look at them and, and, you know, I just took some paper cutout templates and kind of figured out how large or how much surface area those ships would take up with different amounts uh, until we settled on the scale that we have right now. Um, and what, what's interesting, one of the things that we found out during it is when the TIE fighter came out, a number of people in the community said that we got the dimensions of the panels wrong, uh, its wings. And first of all, I've got to say, Lucasfilm would not have approved it right. <laughs> yeah. if we got the wrong dimensions. What it turned out to be is that there are two official dimensions for a TIE fighter's wings because they had an A set and a B set of models built when they were shooting the movies. No kidding. So depending on which models you were measuring from, you would get different measurements. So one of the things that we got to choose was which set of dimensions <laughs> A <or B. laughs> we were going to use. So yeah. it was basically up to the sculptor for which one they felt that they could uh, sculpt more faithfully. But the little things that you learn about Star Wars along the way. Also, uh, Zoe Robinson, art director at Fantasy Flight Games during my tenure. Amazing. She's the one who told me that you don't have any buttons, zippers, or shoelaces in Star Wars. Because <laughs> if you try to submit a piece of art that has buttons, shoelaces, or zippers, that thing's going to get kicked back. Isn't that right? funny? Um, yeah, so, so X-Wing was uh, a big challenge because I wanted it to be nimble. I wanted there to be a lot of play in just a few figures, which is why you've got one uh, figure one X-Wing, for example, that might be up to eight, nine, ten different pilots with right. different abilities, skills, and things like that. It needed to be an extremely flexible system, and the dice system with the focus symbols activating and un, you know, unlocking different abilities, that actually came from Adam uh, Sadler, one of the designers there. We were working on a lot of things, and I was just like butting my head up against the wall going, I need that extra thing. I need that extra mechanic. I need that extra magic essence that's going to pop up and it's going to unlock this thing and he came up with the focus system nice uh, where this symbol is going to be the trigger and it's like adam that's brilliant and i'm kicking myself going i had just done this very thing with advantages and disadvantages <laughs> in the narrative dice system yeah how did i not think of this with x-wing isn't that funny so, so it was that interesting funny? that like i almost shut my role-playing game brain off completely when i was yep. designing x-wing which crippled me it, it it made me design with one arm tied behind my back um, but yeah, X-Wing was a big challenge, but another interesting thing is we wanted it to be accessible. We wanted it to be both an entry level product so that people who, like you had mentioned, this might be their entry into this hobby of miniatures gaming, but it also had to be a deep and tactical enough level game that the avid collector, because that's a huge part of your target demographic too, is the yeah. people who are going to buy every product, the people who are going to be in competitive tournament play. Mm-hmm. People who want to abuse the system. Uh, yep. they, they want to find every loophole. They want to find the max strategies. This has to be good enough that it can develop a meta. Uh, and so one of the challenges off the bat was it needs to be simple enough. At the time, my oldest boy uh, was the same age as the VP of marketing son. And they were either eight or nine at the time. And the goal was they need to be able to open up this box. And with the introductory rules, they need to be able to open it and start playing. Yeah. And they need to be able to play that. And so the intro sheet 
that just tells you, take these two figures out, roll these dice, use this template, and gets you started, was born from this need to make it simple to access. And once you know the, the language, both the terminology, but the icons, once you understand the language of X-Wing, the rest of it is just kind of like, oh, all right, now I can look at any ship, I can look at any card, and now I know how it's going to function, I can think about how yeah. that's going to fit into my squadron. Uh, so it really was interesting to design a game that had to be delivered at three levels. It had to be delivered at the light, high entry point. It had to be delivered to the casual gamer. And then mm-hmm. it also had to be a game for the competitive and established gamer. So that was probably the biggest challenge for X-Wing, was designing one game that could serve three audiences. Yeah, that had to have been, that had been huge. Now, when you talk about kind of the arc of design, right? So the first day you're sitting down, we're going to make a game using spaceships from Star Wars to boom, it's in a box, it's now being sold. What are some, what would, one or two early goals that you guys said, you put on the whiteboard and said, we need to accomplish this. And now that it's finished, you can look back and say, nailed it. Um, what do you think you guys did right that you wanted to do from the very beginning? All right. So went back and I watched a lot of the dogfights in the movies. And the first thing that I came away with and made as one of my goals is a good X-Wing pilot needs to be able to one shot a tie fighter. Right. We see it in the movies. So it's not going to happen all the time, but it has to be possible. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to. So that's both the mechanics of the stats for the TIE fighter and how flimsy and fragile a baseline TIE fighter is. Yep. Also about how much firepower does an X-Wing have then? And then also distribution of symbols on these dice. So all of this, it's like eventually as we came up with this, it's all right. We're looking at medium range. Okay. Now we're at medium range with an a, a average pilot. All right. Medium range, average pilot, flimsy ship and all of these things until we came up with this algebra, right? This equation <laughs> of one X-wing fighter equals one shotting a tie fighter. And was that a benchmark for you to design from going forward? Yes. And, and what's interesting is I came up with what I felt was a good sense of that fairly early on where I had a system that mechanically delivered that. Right. And when we were playing it with X-Wings and TIE Fighters, it worked great. And then I was reminded that we also were doing Y-Wings and A-Wings and TIE Interceptors <laughs> and TIE Advance. I'm like, oh, crap. This cannot be my baseline. This needs to be my midline. I need to be able to design above and below this. And so one of the first issues that I had is that that early mechanical achievement was kind of... Um, <laughs> a misnomer i i i looked at that success in the wrong light I'm like all right we need to actually lift that up a little bit higher so we can have more fragile ships on the rebellion side and we need tougher ships on the empire side right. what are you going to do when a y-wing with an ion cannon comes out you know that thing is built for bombing runs what are you going to mm-hmm. do when a tie interceptor which can fly circles around an x-wing on the battlefield is going to come out what are you going to do in the fragileness you know and eventually then it's like oh yeah You know what else exists in this world? The Millennium Falcon. Yeah. That's right. This is going to have to scale up bigger and be able to handle Han and Chewie with the turrets and the Falcon. Oh, and then Slave One. So it was interesting that I I had blinders on initially because I was only looking at the core product. I was looking at one X-Wing and two TIE Fighters. And then I realized when I was looking at the deeper product line and the release stages going, oh, man. I've got to completely rethink 
the equation needs to be the same. I just need larger input. I need larger yeah. variables. I need to increase these. And so, yeah, it was really eye-opening to build above and below my initial baseline that I thought was pretty solid and go back to it and go, yeah, there's no way this system, that first draft would have survived throwing in YT freighters. Interesting. Interesting. That actually makes me think about something. So if you get a bunch of uh, neckbeards sitting around talking about uh, mini games, what eventually is going to come up is someone's going to start crabbing about power creep, right? They say, oh, they keep releasing new stuff and it's always better than the last stuff and so on and so forth. And I've never actually had a chance to ask this question of a designer. Like, is that a real thing or is that a perception problem? Like, or, or, or how, from a design perspective, like, is that even in the vernacular? Absolutely. And it's something that you worry about from day one, if it's going to be a product that is going to be supported over a lifetime or a, right. you know, whether it's 18 months or a five-year plan or whatever it might be. I mean, X-Wing is now in its eighth, ninth year. Has um, to be, yeah. And so it, it's absolutely an issue. And I had just mentioned that power creep came out right away as soon as yeah. we went up to han solo being a, you know a, a pilot then suddenly that's power creep so we got the point system and got to adjust that but then there were new abilities then there were new maneuvers then there were uh new areas of the universe that we explored new types of ships and their mm-hmm. roles in the game that yes some earlier ships were no longer as viable i mean that's just Magic the Gathering has that problem as well. There's absolute power creep. So that was a concern, which is another reason to tinker with that initial formula um, of the the X-Wing being able to one-shot a TIE fighter, going, all right, well, is that always going to be true? And what's going to happen when we get to XYZ? I think it's inevitable because eventually, no matter how well you try to design a system, when it's handed off to somebody else, they're going to have new ideas. Yeah, They're going to have ideas that I would have never thought of. Yep. Like the people who took X-Wing over for me uh, came up with some of the most clever and creative designs that if I had worked with them on it, maybe I would have been able to, but they looked at X-Wing and they saw a completely different tool set than what I had ended up designing. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of the life cycle of a long living game. Uh, and I will look at X-Wing, and I have not played X-Wing in a while, but when I do play X-Wing, my favorite way to play is if I'm going to play the Empire, for example, just give me a deck of Empire pilots, let me shuffle it up, and let me deal out ships until I get to about 80 points, and then shuffle up, um, you know, the other benefits and bonuses and attachments and, you know, things like that. that, Yeah. Yeah. And and then once I'm in the 98, 99 range, all right, let's just feel this. And I'll go with a random squadron and I've had some people play that and go, oh, I suddenly saw a combo that I never saw before because I'm so entrenched in the way that I had been playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, power creep is, is an issue. And it's interesting because you think about that in terms of role playing too. High level play is always harder to balance and account for than low level play. Interesting. Because most of the, everybody will enter the game. And almost everybody's first introduction to the role-playing is at those lower levels, mm-hmm. at the lower power values. Well, what is that character going to look like after 20, 30, 50 sessions? Uh, and high-level play is difficult to balance in a role-playing game. That's why we have the adversary system, and that's why the, the dice system is, is so important to that. But in, in X-Wing and in miniatures, you're always going to have these uh, 
center point vehicles or units that are just key parts of the architecture when somebody's building a list. Right. If you want to do a early on when X-Wing first came out, there was the uh, nine TIE fighter and the 11 point TIE fighters. And you're just going to put nine of them out on the field and you're going to hope that you get lucky with your dice. Yeah. Uh, and then there were different combinations of things that come out. So you're always going to have these different uh, metas that appear. And every time there's a new expansion, every time a new product is launched, the meta is going to adjust to accommodate that and decide mm-hmm. whether or not the new content makes the cut and is now part of the meta or wasn't good enough. I mean, you get the same thing with Overwatch when a new character is introduced. Correct. Is that character worthy of tournament play? Is that character yep. a high level? Are they going to fit into the two-two-two build? Um. So yeah, power creep is absolutely back to the original question you asked ten minutes ago. <laughs> um, no, pow- power creep is something, and I will also say that the longer I have worked as a designer, the earlier in the design process I need to assess and think about power creep. Interesting. I have, um, with all, I've had four heart attacks, a stroke, and I've spent some time in a coma. I've got this different mindset now as a designer than I had before all of these. And part of that idea is that these games are a legacy. Yeah. People will be playing these, hopefully, if they enjoy them, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. Um, And I've also got to think about legacy in terms of the game design. Somebody else is going to be designing this two, five, ten years from now. Yep. So I need to make an extensible system. I need to make a forward compatible system that other people can find ways to develop, design, and improve. And I really do think that a lot of people have improved on the work that I did because, you know, again, they look at it in ways that I can't because of the design experience, background, and perspectives that I bring to the table. So how hard is that to walk away, though, Jay? How hard is it to say, you know what, you guys finish this or you guys continue this and, you know, stuff is still coming out for Um, X-Wing. The books are still coming out for uh, the Star Wars games. Is it, I don't know, I, I have no idea what that must be like. It's bittersweet. It's it's bittersweet. Um, It's sad that I cannot still be involved with it because obviously I would love to be involved with Star Wars all the time. I'd love to spend every waking moment working on new games with creative people that will be played by, you know, a a really energetic fan community. Um, So I'm incredibly happy that the games are still supported. I'm incredibly happy. There, there was a year, I think 2018, um, where X-Wing was the best-selling miniatures game in the world, and the Star Wars roleplay was the second best after Pathfinder. And it's just That's like, you crazy. know, I, I got to contribute to that, yeah. but it was also after I had moved on. So right. it was only because of all the hard work that the people who came after me yep. did. Um, so I, I would love to take credit for the work that I did, <laughs> but I am quick to give credit to amazing people. So for the people who enjoy uh, X-Wing, make sure that you also appreciate the hard work from James Niffen. Uh, he did a lot of the work immediately after me and Adam Sadler. For the people who've enjoyed Edge of the Empire and the Warhammer and the narrative dice system, you've got to thank Dan Clark, Sam Stewart, Andy Fisher, uh, and Tim Huckleberry and Corey Kanaska because they played these early sessions with me. They gave me incredible support along the way, fantastic feedback and, and nothing gets done in this industry in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, uh, even for the games that get designed by one person, 
they got feedback from somebody along the way. They right. got steered right. in a direction. They got something. So um, I'm, I'm very pleased, and I do see that um, I've had some success as a designer, but it would not be memorable if it weren't for the contributions and the hard work of so many other amazing people. That's great. Guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to learn what happened after all of this stuff. So I want to talk about uh, Jay's time as an independent developer, some of the things that he's been working on. We're going to talk about uh, the game Three Years of War and More. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Doug. And I'm a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because Craig promised he'd play as the Arcanist if the Patreon reached $300. I want to see him suffer. Howdy, folks. want to give a quick shout-out to some of our newest patrons. A uh, big thank you to Marcus Weiss, John Aker, Marcus Moore, Drawn X, Joshua Story, and Peter Poor. You and all of the other patrons are the reason we're able to uh, push out all of this content, and we appreciate it. So before we kind of get into um, some of the stuff that you've done, you know, since obviously X-Wing and Fantasy Flight and all of that stuff, um, I do want to understand what it's like to – let me rephrase this, Jay. Compare and contrast working for a big company like Fantasy Flight Games on huge licenses and doing what you've been doing now, which is more independent, working on smaller quote-unquote projects – um, what's in common between the two, what doesn't change and what does change. So the biggest drop off is you're made acutely aware of the support system that you had when you were working with a company, right? There was a marketing department. I don't have to try to run a Kickstarter myself. Yeah. There was an art department. I don't have to either create or find artists. Uh, there was an entire pool of play testers at my disposal at my beck and call. Right. There were writers, there were editors, there were developers. Yeah. And so not having that as an independent designer is really tough, not only because of the services that they provide, but also because of the friendships and relationships that you form. These were people that over lunch would sit down and play the game with me, and it was a better product because somebody from the warehouse sat down and played it with me. <laughs> it was a better product because someone from marketing sat down and yeah. really understood the game. Uh, so not doing that and not having those people – I am very social. As you can tell, I'm really shy. You know, it's really hard to get me to talk. <laughs> Withdrawn. Yeah. You know, kind of, kind of reserved. Um, <laughs> so for me, though, that that was really a big part of the challenge is the social nature of it. I thrive in a nurturing, creative, collaborative environment where you're bouncing ideas off of and you are surrounded by all these people. Yeah. Designing in my office at home without all that. The advantage is I love heavy metal. So I am blaring Testament and Anthrax and Overkill uh, as loud as I can. Now that the entire family is quarantined, as loud as my headphones can. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I've got a little bit more freedom in that way. And I've got a huge prototyping lab area in the basement where I've just got drawers and drawers of bits that I can go to and components from all these different games that I can draw on. And uh, I love whiteboards. So that entire yeah. area, the, the walls are all whiteboards and I've got all these miniature whiteboards and we'll draw and sketch things out. So I tried to recreate my office area as much as possible in my home space. But what I can't recreate is the collaboration. Sure. Uh, 
And sometimes I can get those people via email or a Skype call or something like that, but it is not the same. No, no, it's not the same. So what, so what are the advantages then? So you lose that and that's a big yep. loss, but you've got to, you've got to gain something else. So I think the biggest advantage is really the, the freedom to truly direct the product. So when you're in the collaborative system, you're not always sure who's driving the bus at any one given time. Sure. Because there are so many people on it and so many people giving great ideas that whose great idea are we currently following? Um, working independently, I can really take it as far and extreme or as narrow and focused as I want. And I'm not bound by somebody else's deadline. So I don't need to get this out by September 8th because it's going to be a you know quarter two release right. the following year. Yeah. I can take my time and I can decide when it's done. And, and so I, again, I'll bring up Kevin Wilson's quote. You start out designing a game, but end up delivering a product. That's another tough thing because while I could theoretically give myself infinite time to work on a game, if I never finish it, no one else is ever going to experience it. Yep. Yep. Uh, one big advantage is I have more freedom to explore game design in other ways. So I can go to protospiel events, these prototyping events like Unpub in the Baltimore area. Throughout the Midwest, there are these protospiels where basically uh, designers get together and show their prototypes. And we just play each other's prototypes for an entire weekend. And that's all you that's do. Cool. It is absolutely amazing. If I was still with Fantasy Flight Games, I would not be afforded that luxury because I would be working on their games that are kept under wrap until marketing decides to share them yeah. rather than I can take my game. The last game I took under pressure is this game about this uh, science lab in the Mariana Trench that's slowly falling down. And it's being crushed under the pressure. And it was just scrawled out on cardboard and index cards with you know, Sharpie markers. And I took that and that was my prototype for that weekend. And that's uh, something. And you know, that's a lot of people do that. I, I cannot impress on people enough how much early rapid prototyping is just quickly getting it as quickly as possible into a state that other people can see your idea and you can share it. Um, other times I will get them professionally printed using the gamecrafter.com. Uh, I use them for all my prototypes because they really deliver uh, industry quality componentry and I will completely trick out a game, especially if I think the game is closer to development point where I want to share it with a publisher and yeah. go up to, uh, so you had mentioned three years of war before the break. And so that's a game, for example, that I had been kicking around with the idea. One of the big things that I've done since leaving fantasy flight games in particular is I designed by epiphany. I'll have an idea kicking around in my head and I'll just leave it there kicking around. I might take a couple notes. I might open up a Google doc so I can, you know, add to it whenever. But then suddenly there's this one night where I will wake up at one in the morning. I'm like, I've got it. I'm going <laughs> to, then I'm going to work on it until seven in the morning and I've got a prototype and by God, let's do this. And let's just, and then there might be a fevered weekend where I don't sleep at all. And I've got so much Mountain Dew in my system. Um, it's all designed by epiphany where I get this. It's like, I'm channeling the purest nature of game design yeah. Uh, until it's out of my system. And then I'm exhausted and I need to sleep for a week. Yeah. Um, and so three years of war was this game idea where somebody had told me, you know what? You've never designed a war game. I'm like, well then damn it. I'm going to design a war game. <laughs> so uh, three years of war was originally designed around the worst three years of the hundred years war. And I made this game where it's all about having horrible things happen to you. Because I wanted this game to be about despair and the horrors of war. 
So it's basically a drafting game where the only options for you to draft are all bad. Interesting. So it's like, okay, am I drafting something that is bad for me? But if I, I can hate draft and take something else that's bad for me, but it's going to leave you with even worse options and leave your, we're all going to suffer. We're all in misery, but can I be slightly less miserable? Can I suffer slightly less despair than you and somehow survive? And so uh, I took my prototype to Protospiel and Jim Dietz uh, from Jolly Roger Games. Uh, he had managed Jolly Roger Games years ago. He had been looking for a game for his new foundation, and I showed him, and he's like, my God, this is one of the best games I- I've ever enjoyed losing. Because <laughs> um, he-, he got destroyed the first time he played. He's like, I yeah. immediately want to play it again. Nice. I'm like That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And it was interesting that this was a game that was about an hour and a half long. So it's so one of the longest games I'd ever designed. And it's three rounds, each round being a spring, uh, summer, winter, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter. Um, so 12 phases total in the game of drafting and trying to screw other people over. Um, and I've had people end up with negative scores who are immediately like, oh, man, that's the most fun I've ever had losing. Let's do that's it again. That's great. That's great. So I really felt that I was on something special. And then Jim got in touch with me. He's like, you know what was worse than the hundred years war, the 30 years war. Like what? So he sent me some links and I read about this going, Oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. Um, and the thirties years war is just utterly horrific. And the, the violence and the despair. And, um, I'm like, this is the perfect setting for this game about despair. (laughs) um yeah so it's this game about misery and um a game of misery and suffering uh it's basically (laughs) you know a light a light topic to to end the evening um but i really wanted to explore that and go i wanted to create a game that was all about trying to maintain the best state of play that you can i my kingdom is going to suffer my my you know, dukedom or my, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to suffer, but can I weather the storm long enough that you suffer more? Right. And that's really what it's about. And so um, this was really, for me, a, an achievement that I was able to accomplish something I hadn't done before, which was create a game about war that's mm-hmm. not just this little chit encounter, grognard style war simulation. It is not a simulation of the 30 years war. Well, it also sounds like it's also not a uh, celebration of the violence of war either. No, um, no, it's you. You know, you have you have created a war game that um, talks about another side of war. Yeah, and, and it's a game where you literally cannot avoid despair. Is one of the resources that your kingdom accrues over the course of the game. Yeah, um, and so when you don't have enough resources to pay for something, you suffer despair. If you are last in the round, you suffer despair. You know, and all these different events that can go off where the, if you don't have enough food to feed your people, you suffer despair. Mm-hmm. So despair is this like negative stack of tokens that you get over the course of the game. And then you flip them over at the end to find out just how many points it takes off of your score. So, if I see a huge stack of despair tokens in front of you, I know that I'm doing better. And one of the rarest resources in the game is called hope. <laughs> it, it is the rarest resource and it usually gets bid over very, very fiercely um, because one hope token will cancel out one of your despair tokens at the end of the right. game. 
And so people look at that going, oh, look, there is a ray of hope. And what I love about it is, just like in the role-playing, like there's this narrative call-out. When somebody sees that hope symbol come up in the game, everyone lean forward going, oh, my gosh, I need that hope. <laughs> my kingdom needs that one sliver of hope that comes out. Um, yeah, so it, it was a big challenge to myself. It's a game that I had worked on in Epiphany. I had designed over a weekend, and I took the Protospiel the next weekend. And then it was in development for about a year and a half after that uh, when Jim – uh, picked it up. It successfully kickstarted at the end of last year, and then you know, COVID nineteen kind of screwed yeah. with China's uh, printing and publishing schedule. But it's going to come out later this year. I'm really excited about that. I've also designed a number of other smaller games that I'm looking to either self-publish or hopefully work with another publisher. Like I've got a reverse bidding game called Scapegoat, which is about um, <laughs> all of the pies at the farm are being eaten. And one of you is responsible for it. So we each play a we each play a barnyard animal who is trying to deflect blame onto the other animals that it's not our fault. So are these your hoof prints at the barn? Nope, not me. Um, <laughs> is this your bite mark in the pie over at the the farmhouse? Nope, not me. And it's all a game. It's a reverse bidding game where the only thing that comes up is evidence against you. So you're right. always bidding to not get the evidence. <laughs> uh, and if too much evidence ever is stacked up against you. Uh, for any one given thing like, oh, well, we've got too many footprints of you or we've seen you too much by the silo, then you are the culprit and everybody else gets away scot-free. So question about Scapegoat. Yeah. Obviously, uh, I hear mechanics as a gamer, yep. right? A person who's played a ton of games, so I'm hearing the mechanics. I am lost and really fascinated because it's an interesting theme. What does Traditionally, does one come first for you? Do you have a mechanic and then you find a theme? Do you have a theme, find a mechanic, or does it just kind of happen... Some ways one way, some ways another. How does that come together? It's really 50-50 because I've always got different ideas for themes and genres kicking around, but I've also got these mechanics. I've got the folder of lost mechanics, like the Island of Lost Toys. Yeah. Where if there's an idea that I had for a different game that didn't fit for that game, that idea doesn't go away. That idea yeah. gets filed, and I'll go back and revisit that. And uh, I usually... Once or twice a month, I'll go into those files and I'll go back and look through games. And I've got all my old prototypes going back, gosh, back to college. Um, and I'll go back and I'll revisit those games and see is there something in there. Ooh, here's this really cool drafting mechanic that I had. And that was the kind of the genesis for uh, Scapegoat is it started out as I didn't do it because I wanted to recreate a game about like the usual suspect style. It's not me. It's not me. And it was about uh, Mafioso. And then I'm like, you know what? That's a little bit too dark for this really light because it plays really quick. It plays in about 10, 15 minutes. Oh, so nice. Like, the term scapegoat is great. And I can do cartoony art. So I can do I can do cartoon farm animals. Scapegoat's cool. Can I have any other? Oh, stool pigeon. Stool pigeon fits nice. in perfectly with this. So I can draw a little stool and put a pigeon on it. And I can draw, you know, and, and so it really came together well for that. And for a quick little game like this, it was uh, the movie unusual suspects and then what can i do with that oh it's all about avoiding what, what kind of mechanic can you do with avoiding bidding is forgetting so can i do unbidding what how do we do that and so it kind of kicked back and forth between theme mechanic theme mechanic theme mechanic until gotcha. i got it to where it is now uh, but there are other games that i've been working on that are all about the genre or the idea and i still haven't found the mechanic that's going to pull it together or i've got these mechanics sitting there going man if i could just find the right thing to attach it to then I think I've got something. But right now, it needs two or three other elements before it is a complete game. Right now, it is a system. It is not a game. 
Now, if somebody did not participate in the three years of war Kickstarter, is that something that they'll be able to buy later once it's uh, given it out to the people that did kickstart it? Yeah. So once it's kickstarted uh, and those copies go out, it should be available through normal distribution channels. Uh, if you're unable to find it in your area, you can go online or go support your local game store when they're open again. Um, they're going to need all the help that they can get. And so go and ask them to get it and they can find it through their distributorships. Excellent. Is there any other J Little creations that we need to make sure um, we talk about? Um, what are, what are, is there something that you've got out there right now that you wish more people were playing? Uh, it, it's not a game so much as, I guess, my other two big passions. Uh, one of them is local conventions. So I founded Geekway to the West in St. Louis. It's one of the large, it's now in its 16th year. It's one of the largest gaming conventions where it's just about games it's not yeah. scheduled events but it's just a couple thousand people to sit on st louis and play games now it's uh being managed by some other people once i relocated to the twin cities for the fantasy flight games gig but i i love conventions and so i encourage people that if there's not a convention in your area there's nothing stopping you from creating one and mm -hmm. finding people and gaming so get out there and game and there's no reason not to there are so many ways even now uh when people are in lockdown, there are ways facilitated with tabletop simulator or a zoom meeting or whatever else it might be. Don't let anything stop you from gaming. If you love to game. Uh, and then the second big passion of mine is teaching. And so I'm a professor at UW stout in Menominee, Wisconsin. I teach game design and uh, board game production and processes as well as design thinking. So it, I really enjoy, especially the freshman level game introduction to game design I created that curriculum to focus on tabletop gaming because even people in the video game industry rarely ever just play video games and nothing else. Right. And, and a lot of the mechanics and a lot of the player agency and a lot of the motivation, again, going back to Sid Meier's quote about interesting choices, I also talk about meaningful decisions. Video games, if they don't have interesting choices or meaningful decisions, people aren't going to play them. Yep. Um, and you can see in computer role-playing games, multi-billion dollar industry a lot of the things that we see in tabletop role-playing games and there are so many uh video games whether it's a handheld game whether it's on your phone or whether it's on a console or on a pc that mimic board game mechanics yeah uh but just handle the mechanics behind the scenes and have the script doing it that the freshman year is all about building their game literacy and building as many different games as we can playing as wide a variety of games as we can and just getting these uh, students who want to get into the video game industry or the board game industry later on, getting them comfortable with each other and comfortable with mechanics and systems and learning the language and being able to take risks and being willing to fail. Cause those early prototypes are all about failure. Yeah. You're, you're never going to hit the mark on your first try. You're never going to get it perfect right away. Uh, perfection is the pursuit of angels and fools. Um, and so instead, what you want is you want good enough and you want mm -hmm. to get good enough out there as fast as you can, because then good enough can become good and then good can become really good and then really good yep. can become great. But if it's not good enough to begin with and it's never in front of other people, then it's never going to move forward beyond that stage. So, yeah, so I there's love there's that. Jay, there's Jay Little, the designer. Yep. And now there's Jay Little, the designer who has taught design. Yes. I'd be curious to know what has the teacher learned by teaching others? I think the biggest thing is uh, I've been more open to taking risks earlier. I used to be very guarded about sharing my ideas with other people 
because I was either a scared that somebody would steal my idea, which I've now learned is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> right. You, you can't copyright trademark or patent mechanics or, or concepts uh, in games the way that you can other items. Sure. Uh, so, and there's so much out there that's shared like magic, the gathering spawned so many other great games. Dominion yeah. spawned so many other great games because of that deck building mechanic. Um, so, you know, I used to be guarded because of that. And then I was also guarded because I imposter syndrome. And if you're not yeah. familiar with imposter syndrome, I have it. I know exactly what yeah. it is, but explain it for the listeners. So, so especially for people in a creative field, but imposter syndrome is this negative self-talk where you, where you convince yourself that you are not worthy, that your accomplishments are not worthwhile or that your accomplishments do not, are not deemed valuable enough in the community. For example, as a game designer, I always compare myself to these people who have these million-dollar day one successful Kickstarters and go, man, I wish I could do that. Mm-hmm. And then other people are like, dude, I would kill to have designed X-Wing. I'm like, yeah, but I haven't designed something lately or I haven't designed something as good as. So imposter syndrome just pummels you relentlessly. And I, I've been much better at being able to identify when I start going down that rabbit hole. Good. And and pulling myself out of it because I've unfortunately seen my students fall into that trap. Yeah. So in the first week, I give presentations about accepting failure and telling them that they're going to fail a lot in this class. So just get used to it now and learn from it. And then we talk about imposter syndrome right up front. And almost everybody nods their head in agreement going, yeah, I felt that way before. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's really tricky and I, I think i've learned a lot by working with these kids again there's this whole new generation of gamers whose perspective and introduction into gaming was so different from mine yeah but then i find out that they're still playing D. <laughs> and especially now with with fifth edition being so much more like the earlier systems that yep. we played yep we're still talking the same language mm-hmm. right like they're still playing some video games that i don't play because i've got certain games that i play uh or that i prefer but another thing that I've become better at is variety. I am terrible at platformers. I do not enjoy platformers, but I need to play enough platformers to know what's still relevant and what mm-hmm. makes a platformer appealing to that audience. Yep. Right. And I'm not a big fan of, um, uh, let's say, deck building. But mm-hmm. if you're going to be a designer, you still need to understand deck building. Um, for example, if, if somebody is really serious about being a tabletop designer and they don't learn how to play magic, the gathering, yeah, they're doing themselves a disservice because yep. this is a game that has been successful on almost every metric. It's been around for 20 years. Um, and it's contributed so much to the industry that if you don't, if you don't play settlers of Catan at least once, if you don't play ticket right. to ride at least once, yep. you don't have to love the games. You don't have to know everything about them, but you have to understand, uh, why they've been successful. Well, it's the language and the literacy that you've talked about, right? Yep. And you, you have to understand it, and, and you don't have to like it. So I think that's very, uh, very insightful. Well, Mr. Little, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I might have to talk you into coming on again. So oh, I'll uh, twist my arm. <laughs> anytime that you uh, need something to promote or you want to chat a little bit more, let me know. Um, if anybody needs to, uh, any plugs, any uh, uh, so things it, you want to talk about? 
if uh, you want to find me online or learn about either upcoming appearances once we get back to face-to-face things, uh, you can always check out my website. That's paintedthumb.com because, again, I always have my thumbnails painted. Hey, if you ever see somebody walking around who's a middle-aged, white, bald guy, wait, that doesn't really – oh, <laughs> in, in a Hawaiian shirt with cargo shorts, painted thumbs and an earring, come up and say hi to me. Uh, I go to a lot of conventions. <laughs> but, yeah, check out paintedthumb.com, and I post uh, both – the events that I'll be appearing at, updates on new games that I'm doing. You can also find me on Board Game Geek and the different games that I've designed there. Uh, or check out my user profile, which is Yinnen, Y-N-N-E-N. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about games. As you can tell, I love gaming. It has been important to me. I want it to be valued and important to other people. And I love sharing uh, my passion with games along with other people who share that passion. So thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for going through all of the hard work that it takes to be able to uh, run, produce, and continue uh, a podcast like this. Oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so we'll, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes, and for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy, friend. Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right. Um, now, we're not limited to just talking about this. So if there's anything else that you want to get into, anything you want to talk about, stuff that you've done um, that we haven't talked about yet... Um, things that are coming out uh this is basically your segment i'm gonna t- okay. i'm gonna put the keys in and start you and then you run <laughs> all right and then uh i'll pepper you with questions as we go perfect all right all right so i'll probably start off with my little story about discovering edge of empire um right. and then what I'd really love to do is um, find out the day before Narrative Dice existed and the day after. Because I'm, what I'm really want to dig into, if you're all right with it, is like it came from somewhere, right? So I'd be really fascinated to kind of know that string. So don't tell me now. <laughs> well, I, I, I will just mention yep. that um, 
Star Wars is the spiritual successor of the Wolfram system. Right. So, so I, I'd at least make a nod to that yeah. in your kind of. Well, I'll, uh, I'll let you do it. that. I'll let okay. you do that. Because right. um, it's really. Uh, so, Warhammer Fantasy 3rd Edition is my understanding where, you, where the first time it was implemented at Fantasy Flight, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. So, I'll, I'll launch there and kind of say, you know, uh, it, you know, what were the stepping stones that led to it showing up there and how did that evolve? Does that sound good? All right. Yep. All right. Great. Yep. 